Good morning. It's good to see you. You would please take your Bible and look to Nehemiah chapter 4. <clears throat> Nehemiah. And this morning, I would like us to continue our study in Nehemiah and give attention to this passage as it speaks to facing, <clears throat> facing opposition to God's work. <clears throat> you know, whenever believers get serious about obeying God and doing the work that he has called them to do, they can count on opposition. And it will come from different places, and we'll see that not just in this passage, but others that we will look at, Lord willing, <clears throat> as we go through our study. But it is very much the case that Satan is very much at work against the work that the people of God are doing that God has called them to do. And it is interesting, there are those even in Old Testament studies that would disagree with what I'm about to tell you, um, not in our circles, but in the broader realm of Old Testament studies, because they would say that um, I shouldn't be talking about Satan if the scriptures don't talk about Satan. And it doesn't mention Satan here in Nehemiah chapter 4. It just so happens, though, that I've read the Bible past Nehemiah. <laughs> and there's more to it. I love the book of Nehemiah. You probably figured that out. But there's more in this Bible than just the book of Nehemiah or the books that come before Nehemiah. And I happen to know very well that there is a Satan, that Satan was very much at work. And even in Nehemiah's day, by the way, they had an understanding of Satan. We'll not go into all of that and other passages in the Old Testament, but they did recognize Satan and his work. And so even though the passage does not mention Satan, we know this, that he is a liar that he is the adversary of the people of God, and that when the people of God get serious about doing the work of God, he is angry about that, and he does everything that he can do to stop that work. And that is what we're looking at this morning. A uh, great Bible teacher, J.I. Packer, said the following, or wrote the following, the real theme of Nehemiah chapters 4 through 6 is spiritual warfare. And Nehemiah's real opponent, lurking behind the human opponents, critics, and grumblers who occupied his attention directly, was Satan, whose name means adversary, and who operates as the permanent enemy of God, God's people, God's work, and God's praise. Nehemiah does not mention him, few Old Testament books do, but that does not mean that he was not there. Direct opposition on the human level to those who are obeying God and the use of flaming arrows of discouragement to destroy hope, induce fear, and so paralyze their endeavors are two of his regular tactics, and both are in evidence in these chapters. When you see Satan's fingerprints on events, it is safe to bet that Satan himself is actively present even if he carefully keeps himself out of sight." And it is also something that we should be reminded of, and that is what Paul said, that like the Apostle Paul said about himself, we too must not be ignorant concerning the schemes or devices of Satan. So Nehemiah 4 not only teaches us that we should expect opposition when doing God's work, but it also gives instruction on how to face it and how to overcome it. As we look at this passage, it really um, comes in three waves, the opposition. 
We're going to see a verbal assault. We're going to see the threat of physical assault. And then we're going to see internal assault among the people of God themselves. And I want to spend most of our time this morning looking at the first part, although we'll, as time permits, look at the rest of it and see how it answers to the first part. But I think the first part really sets the stage. So let's begin reading, and I would like us to read the first six verses here in Nehemiah chapter 4. Now it came about when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, it would break their stone, uh, it would break their stone wall. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So the people had a mind to work. Well, I'd like us to look at the approach to attacking the people, and it begins with five questions that Sam Ballot raises here as we read this passage, and most of them are in verse 2 here, as in fact, all of them are in verse 2. Notice here the first question he asks is, what are these feeble Jews doing? And I want to give you some words. You've, if you've been here as I preach, you know I like to give words to kind of hang things on, maybe to help us remember them. And the first word I would use here with this question is frailty. And what Sam Ballad is doing is he's pointing out their frailty, their weakness, their feebleness. And I tell you as believers, I think some of us take exception to the fact that uh, the world looks at believers as frail and weak. Um, we're kind of like uh, our, um, my wife and I, our oldest grandson, he came to visit with us a couple of weeks ago on the weekend. It was his first time to be with us without his parents. And so it was a real special time for us. Not that we don't like his parents, but uh, um, we, we had full responsibility um, for the weekend with him. But uh, my wife and I um, will call him, my wife calls him her little man, and I'll call him little buddy. Well, we said that to him, and he looked at us, and he, he keeps learning more and more language, um, and he lets us know this. And he said to us, I am not little. I'm big. And so don't call me little buddy and not little man. And so he's letting us know that, no, no, I'm big. I'm not little. And this is just a part of a lot of us, we're still like that. We don't want people to think we're little. We don't want people to think we're weak. We don't want people to think that we're frail or feeble, unable to do things. And so for many of us as believers, we're, we're angry when we hear people say this. I remember the first time I heard someone say that Christianity was just a crutch for people and that it's not 
something that everyone needs. If you need it, fine. That means you're weak, but that's the message. And so this is where we are. And some of us may also realize our weakness, but what we want to do is get rid of it. If we are weak, we don't want to be weak. We want to be strong. How many times we as believers do we pray, God, make me strong? And we want to be strong. We want to have strength, and we don't want to be perceived as weak. I think about the Apostle Paul. He prayed about this in his own life. He had what he called a thorn in the flesh. We're not sure exactly what that was. What we don't need to know exactly what it was because a thorn in the flesh can come in many ways in the lives of believers. And so I think it's left ambiguous so that we would realize that it could be in many ways that we can have a thorn in our flesh, but it caused him great distress and it weakened him in some way. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 8, concerning this, speaking of this thorn in the flesh, I implored the Lord three times that, he might, that it might leave me. <clears throat> and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And Paul wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 26, he said, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. And he went on, uh, and he says this, in the same passage, it's because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I don't know uh, why this is happening, but I have in recent years been remembering a lot more childhood songs that I was taught, well, a number of years ago. And this one may be familiar to you as well. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones, little ones, to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. And so that's the message to them. He's making fun of them, he's mocking them. You're weak, you're feeble. Frailty is what describes you. You can't do this work. You can't do the work that God has called you to do because you're frail, you're weak, you're unable to do this. And this ties to the next question he asks. He says then, are they going to restore it for themselves? In other words, are they able to do this themselves? Can they really do this? They can't do this. We've seen them for years here and they've done nothing. 
They can't manage this on their own. There's no way they will be able to complete this work. Now, if you think that you're inadequate to be what God has called you to be, and you think you're inadequate to do the work that God has called you to do, let me encourage you, and let's lay this matter to rest. You are inadequate. There you go. This is say it. You are inadequate. And let's make our peace with that and recognize that that is the truth. But we need to understand that Jesus Christ is more than sufficient. And our sufficiency is not in us or anything that we have to offer, but it is in Christ alone. He is our sufficiency. He is our strength. He is our power. He is the one who is at work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. All we have to boast, if there is any boasting to be done, it is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is not in anything we have to offer. It is not in anything that we can bring to the table and say, this is my skill before you. The Lord has sent us his Holy Spirit. If we are believers, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And he is at work in us, as Jesus said, to guide us in all truth, to guide us in the truth. And as Paul wrote again in 2 Corinthians 9, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance for every good deed. But it is God who does this. It is not we ourselves. And Nehemiah knew this. You remember back when we looked in chapter 2 and Nehemiah addressed the people and he said that the, the city is in ruins. This is not good. We need to do something about this. And he said, we need to rise up and do the work that gets rid of this reproach upon us. But in the midst of that statement, he, he makes to them and that call to them, that exhortation to come and join him in the work that God brought him to do. He also says that it is the, the Lord God who will give them the help they need to be successful in rebuilding the wall. It is the Lord's work. And it is interesting. When we look to chapter 6, and we actually see the wall is completed, it says in chapter 6 that the enemies will be upset and they will be discouraged because they will realize that it was the God, their God, the God of Israel, their God that gave them success in rebuilding the wall. It's not about us and it's a good thing it's not because we are weak, we are inadequate. And what we want is to say, no, I'm strong. Like my, my, my grandson, no, I'm big. I'm not little. I'm not weak. I'm not inadequate. I can do these things. And no, you can't, and I can't, in and of ourselves. But understanding that we are inadequate and understand that we are weak and frail 
does not mean that we are not able to do the work that God has called us to do. And that was the message of Nehemiah to his people in his day. That was the message of Paul to the church when he wrote the Philippians and said to them, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That statement was the most humble statement a man can make. You say, how? It sounds like it's pretty egotistical to say that he can do all things. No, he's saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know what humility is? Humility is not running yourself into the ground. Really, that's just a false um, pride. When we, we say, I can't do this and I can't do that, and, and we focus on the things we can't do and, and I'm no good and all this sort of stuff. No, that's not helpful. It's not, that, that's not humility. You want to know what humility is? Humility is dependence on God. That's what it is. Pride is depending on self. But humility is recognizing I am inadequate and I can do all things through Christ. I am weak, but nothing's going to stop me from doing the work that God has called me to do because Christ is in me, his Holy Spirit dwells in me, and he has called me, and he has equipped me, and through his strength and by his power and by his work, I will do what he has called me to do. That is humility. It is trusting in God alone, not just, as we say, for our salvation, but it is for our entire lives and the work that he has called us to do as believers, trusting in him. And so, yes, frailty, you're too frail, you can't do this, inadequacy, you don't have the, the means to do this. And then the next word is fallacy. The next question we see is, can they offer sacrifices? And I use the word fallacy because here's the point that Sam Bellett's making or trying to make. You have put your trust in a God who is unable or unwilling to help you. Because if your God were strong, Jerusalem wouldn't be in the, the condition it's in in the first place. You see, their understanding in, in their day in the ancient Near East was that if a people group were beaten by another people group, it's because the victor's God was victorious over the, the defeated people's God. And so the understanding in their day is if Jerusalem fell, and it did, and if Jerusalem was destroyed, and it was, and if their temple had been destroyed, and it was, then the God of the Babylonians was much more powerful. Marduk was what his name was. They called him. Marduk was much more powerful than Yahweh, and Yahweh is weak. The God of Israel cannot defend himself, and he cannot defend his people, and there's nothing he can do, and the evidence is before us because of the wreck we see in front of us that has happened here. Now, was it because of God's weakness? Absolutely not. Why was the city destroyed? Why had the people become a reproach? Let's remember when we looked in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah in his prayer to God makes it very clear why things were the way they were, why they came to be what they came to be. What was it? It was because the people had been unfaithful to Yahweh. The people had turned away from their God, and they had worshipped idols, 
and they had become altogether immoral and selfish and conceited, and they had no need for God. Their worship was in pretense. It wasn't real. It wasn't true devotion to Yahweh. And the Lord God said, I am going to call in the Babylonians, and they will be my instrument of judgment against you. It's interesting, when he talks through these prophets, God says, when I bring this judgment, don't give them credit. Understand, I'm the one that's doing this, and I'm using them to do what I want done. And so it's the Lord God who did this to his people. It wasn't Marduk. It was God's own discipline on his people. And so this is why they are in the situation they're in. But Nehemiah came and he said, no, this is not the end of the matter. And yes, God, we have sinned. And yet you have promised that you would restore. And we're trusting you in that. And so Samballot, in his unbelieving heart, he says, your God is weak as well. And you have put your faith in a God that is untrustworthy. You have a fallacy. And what is the fallacy? You think your God can save you. You think your God can give you victory. And I'm telling you, he can't. Well, that's the message of the enemy. And that's the message that we often hear today. Who is your God? Where is your God? What has he done? I remember when I was a freshman in college, I had to, uh, I don't remember what the exact assignment was, but a part of it included my reading an article in The Atlantic. And I got the issue I needed. And as I got to it, I saw on the front cover, it was, I don't remember word for word, but basically it, the question was, where is he? And what they were asking is, where is Jesus? Because he said he would come again. He's not here. Been 2,000 years. He's not here. And the message of the article was, you know why he's not here? Because he's not coming. Because he's not God. And you have put your faith in someone that you, you've just messed up in doing because he's not really God. And I have to tell you, growing up in a Christian home and um, in a school that wasn't, I wouldn't, it wasn't a Christian school, but let's just say that uh, at least the schools in my area were different than, than they are now. In other words, if the church was having something on Wednesday nights in our community, the school didn't have activities on Wednesday night. And so it was a, a very different society and culture I lived in. And that was in Ohio, by the way. I know in the Deep South, it was much more like that. But in my little community, it was that way as well. And so I didn't hear a lot of attacks on Christ, God, or the church. So as a freshman in college, I read this, and, and it caught my attention. And I, I did do my assignment, I think, because I, I passed the class anyhow, went on. But I really don't remember that. I remember that article. And that is the message of this world. And the world wants us to believe 
that we cannot trust in God's help. It's interesting what God said through his, um, his prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 41, verses 9 through following. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but you will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Thing is, the people of God in Nehemiah's day, and even more so the people of God today, his church, we have a whole history of recognizing the faithfulness of God to his people. I have a very short history of nearly 58 years looking at the faithfulness of God in my life. I told you, and I don't mean to be morbid about this, but it's just it's what I've been thinking about in the last few years. I've had several family members pass away, people very close to me. I have one brother. Um, he has a tumor on his, his, his brain. He has a device in him that's doing 98% of the pumping of uh, the blood for his heart, doing 98% of the work. He has a very rare disease, a heart disease. And um, he's only the only close family I have left, and all the rest have, have gone. And you begin thinking, you know, my world has changed, and it's changing from what it once was. And I remember thinking that, and it hit me. All of the relationships I've had since I was a child, they are gone or are probably going to be gone sometime within the next 10 years, and I may be gone by then. But it dawned on me that there's one who has been constant the whole time, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I came to Christ when I was eight years old, but I will tell you, I know that he was looking out for me even if I wasn't looking for him before I was eight. And he has been constant in my life. And he has been faithful in my life. In deep losses in my life, in, in, in deep tragedies in my life. And I don't wanna go into all those, you don't need to hear all those things, but very difficult times in my life. I look back and I see the faithfulness of God in all of that. And I know that the God who has been faithful, when I go into dark times again, if it should happen, the God who has been faithful will be faithful always. And I can trust in that. I know that's true. I can tell you this isn't just preacher talk or seminary professor talk. There is nothing you can say to dissuade me from that truth. 
because he has shown me he is faithful. And I know that to be true. And so the, the enemy wants to think, I can't trust God. That's a fallacy. If that's your crutch, okay. If it works for you, okay. But it's really empty. And that's a lie because God is true to his people, faithful to his people, and we can trust in him. Then the next question they ask, or Sam Ballard asks, can they finish in a day? The word is tenacity. Can they finish in a day? In other words, he's saying, okay, you're going to start this work. This is going to be too much for you. You can't finish it in a day, and therefore you're not going to finish it because you're going to quit. It's just going to be too much for you to handle. And there's no way with such a big job that this will be that you're going to finish what you started. And so he questioned their tenacity to finish this work. I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes. This is another favorite book of mine. In the Ecclesiastes, I believe Solomon wrote that book. Solomon says, the end of a matter is better than the beginning. And it really is. Because how many times do we start something that we don't finish? How many times can we look in our garages or look at spaces in our house where we started a project and then we didn't finish it? How many times have we made promises to ourselves or to others or even to God and then have not kept those and continued in the work that we said that we would do? So when he asked the question, you're not going to finish this, it's too much for you. The point is that with human beings, that often is the case. But it is interesting, Paul wrote in Galatians 6, verse 9, let us not, grow, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. It is interesting to me to note that the scriptures say that it's God who is at work in us both to do, will and to do of his good pleasure. And yet also the scriptures tell us, get to work, do the work, be steadfast, be faithful, don't grow weary in the good things that God has called you to do. And so that it is God at work in us and yet he has called us to work. He has called us to be about his work and that we should not grow weary in doing his good work. And so we need to be people that when the, the enemy says, no, you're a bunch of quitters, say, no, 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 no. My God is faithful and I am committed to him, and I'm going to complete the work that he has given me to do. I'm going to be found faithful. Don't you long to hear those words? I long for those words. Someday to see my Savior and to hear him say, well done, good, and what? Faithful servant. Don't you long to hear that? I want to hear those words. And I'm going to meddle a little bit here. I can do that because 
I really don't know you all very well. So I'm not picking on anyone in particular. I'm just picking on all of you, okay? But in the work that we have committed to Christ, are we committed to those works unto Christ to finish the work that he has given us to do? To finish to the end. Oh, it's all well and good, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, that we start something and get going with it. But you know what's better? Is if we finish well. Finish well. Finish to the end. I don't know if I've gone to Sunday not talking about my father. He, he, there's no one besides the Lord himself that's had any greater impact on my life. But when he had his aneurysm, he was 73 years old. The church he was pastoring had blown up in attendance and growth like it had never before. And, and, and his, the church, his, his ministries, the two I remember growing up, both of them grew from very small ministries to very large ministries. But what was odd to me like in the last four or five years, when he's like 68 to 69 to 73, all of a sudden things just went crazy with the growth. And I have to say, he, he just didn't have the energy he once did. I, I, he would often go home for lunch, and um, somehow after lunch, um, he'd be asleep for an hour, and then he'd wake up and go back to the office at church. But the, the church was just like, just doing so well, and, and his ministry was so, so blessed. And I say that to say, when I think about dad, when he had his aneurysm, it was a Friday afternoon, he uh, was walking to the car, and um, he called my mom, and he said, I don't think I'm going to make our date tonight. And those were the last words, clear words he ever said before he had to have uh, um, devices on him where he could no longer talk and, and do the things that he was able to do. But I think about that. He had spent a whole week, it's the end of the week, he usually spent the day Saturday at home, and then Sunday was a full day for him. They had multiple services, then service in the evening as well, and all the things that he was involved with. I want to finish like he did. I want to be that person that ends well, that's found faithful. And I think you do too. And this is what we should be. The enemy will make its snide remarks at us. You know how we silence the enemy? By faithfulness. How did Job silence Satan? By faithfulness. And that's how we will silence him as well. To finish the work that he has called us, that God has called us to do. And then the last question he asks is, can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burnt, burned ones? The word here is impossibility. He's saying this is impossible. You guys have just bitten off more than you can chew. It is impossible for you to do this work. And what we must remember 
is what we see several times in the scriptures. I'll quote one in Luke 1, 37. Nothing will be impossible with God. And then I already mentioned this, but I'll mention it again. And then Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nothing is impossible with God, and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That is the work that he has called us to do. And their derision ultimately was not aimed at Nehemiah and the people. Their derision was aimed at God. That God cannot help you. That God will not help you. That you have placed your faith in the wrong God. And you're expecting something that your God will never do. And you're expecting the impossible and your God will not do that either. And our God is able. Our God is strong. Call me weak. I am weak. Getting weaker as I go. Had a meeting with a, uh, this week we're getting ready for school. Had a meeting with a, a, a luncheon with some professors. We all got depressed by the end of it because we were all talking about surgeries we'd had, um, rotator cuff, knee, knee replacements, and, and all this. And, and one of them, he said, man, this has just been depressing. I'm just with a bunch of old guys here. And I'm like, yeah, I guess we are. And it's, it, it is a part of life. But our God is strong. And here's the shamefulness of this. And, and, and I recognize this in my own life. When I was a little boy singing songs like Jesus loved me, loves me and other songs like that, there was, no, there was no doubt whatsoever that my God is strong. He is the one who has, as we would sing, the whole world in his hands. And yet the shamefulness is that the longer we live, we're very prone to, to listen to the enemy and start believing maybe there's something to what they're saying. And we see this in the response here. What do we see in Nehemiah's response? Well, there's a defiant prayer. And as he responds to, to uh, Sam Ballot, this might make some of our Christian, Western, modern sensibilities be upset. Because in verse 4, he says, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. We're like, how can we pray that? How could he pray this? How could he be a man of God and pray something like this? And we wince at this because we don't have the same kind of understanding of sin that true people of faith have. And that is, this was not about Nehemiah. This was not even about the people. This was about God's work. And he was against anything that would be an enemy to God and the work that God was doing. And we have, as Christians, bought into this idea that to be loving and kind 
means that, it's, that we say it's okay to be sinful and offend a righteous and holy, holy God with our sinful ways. No, we don't have to be offensive because others are offensive to God, but let's recognize sin and wickedness is an offense to God. And by the way, what offends the people that we love will offend us. Not because it's about us, but it's about those that we love. How much more with the Lord God? How many of us are truly offended at what this world does and says against our God? Oh, we're offended for ourselves. Oh, they think we're weak. They think I need a crutch and and they talk bad about me and I don't know what to do with it. Why, 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 why? Whiny, whiny, whiny we are. We're little babies. Buck up and say, this is about God. This is about what his kingdom is about. It's bigger than me. I don't matter in this thing. What matters is the glory of God and the faithfulness of God's people to God and that we stand strong and recognize that God is going to defeat the wicked. And unless they come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that is their end. Do you realize that? Do we just pass over that in scripture and act like that's not true? It is the truth. You know what concerns me about the church today? We conservatives, we really blast the liberals and yet we ourselves cherry pick the scriptures to hold on to what what our sensibilities can take and kind of press and push aside what we're just a little bit uncomfortable with. Are you uncomfortable with your God? I don't know that he cares if you are, though. You know, I heard a guy one time say, that's just not intellectually satisfying to me. I don't think God's concerned about your intellectual satisfaction. And so this is who he is. And this is the truth. That's why the gospel is the gospel. That's why grace is so amazing. Because we are inherently wicked and we are depraved and we are sinful apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the washing of his blood and the work that he has done in us. That's what makes it so amazing because how can this holy, righteous God, this pure and holy Savior, Jesus Christ, offer himself up for a sinner like me? Because apart from the grace of God, I would be like Sanballat. In fact, even with the grace of God, I'm prone sometimes to think like Sanballat does. And yet, we, we act as if, oh, we shouldn't talk about this. If it's about you, you're right. Here's our problem. We do get upset about the sinful things in this world, but it's really more about us than it is about God. And if it's about us, then we are wrong. If you're upset about the things going on in this world because it makes you uncomfortable and you just don't like to live in this kind of situation, then that doesn't honor God at all. That's about you. But there is a righteous anger towards sin. And that is 
the righteousness of Christ that we want God to receive honor and glory, and that's why we live, and that's what makes us tick. It is about him, and it's not about us. And there's no hatred toward individuals in and of themselves. It is hatred toward this world system, toward the powers of the, of the air, the principalities of this world that has a grip on this world, and we hate that if we are the people of God. And there is among us, I will say this, you don't love as much as you think you love if you don't hate like you ought to hate. Because I said this to you before, if my wife had cancer, there's no person on this earth I love any more than my wife. If she had cancer, there's nothing I would hate any more than that cancer because of my love for her. And the stronger my love is for her, the stronger my hate is for anything that would hurt her. You understand that. So how much more the people of God? It's not really a matter necessarily of our lack of hatred. It may be a lack of our love. Because if we had a greater love, we would have a greater hatred toward those things. And this is what we see. And that's why Nehemiah prays what he prays. And he says, for they have demoralized the builders. It's about the work that was done for the glory of God. And that's why he prayed what he prayed against the enemy. And anything that would tear down at the glory of God or try to tear down, you can't tear down the glory of God, but would attempt to tear down at the glory of God and, and bring um, God's people to be demoralized, that is something that we should utterly reject. And that's exactly what he's saying here. And then notice what he says. So we built the wall. There you go. Sam Ballot said all these things. He's yapping at us. We're building. We've got work to do. We're not going to listen to that. We started, I started classes a couple weeks ago. And one of my textbooks, I told the students, I said, now you need to understand, I don't agree with everything that these, these authors say in this, this particular book. Um, but... It's a master's program. You didn't know what people are sometimes saying about the scriptures, and so I want you to be aware of that. And a student raised his hand and said, well, are you going to speak to all the things that you disagree with? I said, absolutely not. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let them dictate what I'm going to teach in my class. I'm going to say what I want to say. I'm not going to spend all my time re um, firing back at them. i got things to say that's better than their stuff anyhow. And I don't mean that in pride. I'm just saying if, if they question God's word and I'm teaching God's word, that is better. And here's the thing. We think that we've got to, get it, we've got to fix everybody around us and, and the enemy that would try to weaken us or try to put us down. You don't need to do that. Just get on with the work. Be faithful to the work. 
This is probably good. Uh, you don't have to be in sports. It's other areas. But this is probably where it was good for me to be involved in sports. I, I was a pitcher. You have no idea what the other side and the fans of other teams said about me while I was on the mound. I mean, I didn't even know I had a rubber arm. I found out later, like it's falling apart actually right now. But I mean, they'd say all sorts of terrible things. If I listened to everything they said, I didn't ever pitch the ball. All it did for me is like, I want to strike this guy out, and I'll shut you guys up now, won't I? That's what we should do. Get on with the work that God has called us to do. And they will yap, and they will do whatever. Understand this. Do you know why they're just yapping? Because there's this thing called King Artaxerxes' letter that says that Nehemiah has my authority to do what he's doing. They're just yapping, because if they did anything else, it wouldn't be just against Nehemiah, but it would have been against the king. But who was it that melted the heart of the king to give grace to Nehemiah? God. God did that. And so God will work out his ways. He can take care of himself. We don't need to fight against the enemy in place of doing the work that God has called us to do. Fighting against the enemy for us is being faithful to the work that God has called us to do. When we carry the gospel and we share the gospel and people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that is fighting the enemy and saying, our God is bigger than you. He is a saving God and he is at work in his kingdom. And so that is what they brought to to bear with us. So we built the wall. And the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work, had a heart to work, literally a mind to work. And so this is what happens. And then verses 7 and 8. Now when Sambalat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. So they were very angry before, and they're still very angry. So what? The work is getting done, and God is glorified. And that's what needed to be done. And so then they all conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Well, if you look at Nehemiah 4, there are a lot more verses in Nehemiah 4. And I actually considered this. So I'm going to stop right here. And you're glad I am, I'm sure. But I'm going to stop right here because I actually thought I may need to stop right here, and so I will. And Lord willing, we'll just pick up next week as, as we go through this. Um, I have to say, I haven't been preaching. It's been a long time since I've been pastoring and preaching every Sunday in series like this, but I do it at school. But I can always, at school, just say, we'll pick up next time. And so here I've been like, I don't know if I can do that with you all, but I'm just going to, whether you like it or not, okay? So there you go. But... Um, But anyhow, we need to, as I close here, I want to ask you the question. Do you have the tenacity that the people of God showed in continuing to work regardless of what the world and the enemy was bringing down on it? They may say that we're weak, and inadequate, and we are, 
that our God is not. And you know what? As brothers and sisters in Christ, his Holy Spirit is in us. And he is unstoppable. And so let us follow what the Lord is doing in our lives. Not grieve the Holy Spirit and not allow the enemy to discourage us. But let us be tenacious in our weakness, in our inadequacy, because our God is strong and we can trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the men and women who were with Nehemiah who who were faithful to do the work that you called them to do. I thank you even more for your son who was faithful to finish the work that he came to do. And Lord, we know the enemies and the opposition that he encountered, but he was faithful to complete the work that he came to do in your name. May we, with the work of your Holy Spirit in us and with the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, that has saved us, may we too be found faithful in the face of opposition. And may we, like the people in Nehemiah's day, have a mind to work so that you might be lifted up and that souls might be saved and that your church might be built up, that we would not be a reproach, but that we we would be a wonderful light in a very dark world. To the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.